welcome to Hystericology. Today it is just me, Andrea. Elizabeth is not able to be with us, and we have a guest, Holly Stewart Keynes, who is joining us from New York. I'm very excited to speak with Holly. It's actually been a really long time since Holly and I have seen each other. Holly was a staff, I think the, from where I sat, the main staff when I was in treatment as a that's, teenager. Yeah. I think I was the, the, the supervisor of the girls treatment. Yeah. 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 And I, I honestly don't remember a ton about Holly other than you really hate bananas. I hate bananas. <laughs> <laughs> I hate them. They make me sick. They just, they make me sick. <laughs> That's so great. I just, I remember people pulling pranks on you <laughs> with bananas. <laughs> yeah. um, but other than that, um, Holly was kind of more of a figurehead from where I sat as a teenager. Um, and so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about residential treatment, Holly's experience, both as staff, and then now Holly's a licensed therapist. And then myself, if you remember from previous podcasts, I was a resident in teen treatment. And then I worked as staff at two teen treatment centers and then as a therapist at a third teen treatment center. Uh, and before we get started, I want to acknowledge that this is a tough topic. This is, it is. It is not easy to talk about. In fact, in a previous recording, we've recorded a couple of these now, they're not all out, but I actually had a big enough emotional response that I had a little bit of a dissociative moment. Really? And I couldn't pin down my thoughts. I could not form them into words. My whole body felt really tingly. And of course, I knew it was happening because with a lot of trauma and then also being a therapist, I'm like, okay, this is, you know, I need some time to come down from this. So I want to acknowledge first Holly for coming here and speaking to this and doing this emotional labor. This is something that it's easy to just walk away from and yeah. not talk about. So thank you yeah, for thank being you for, here. Thank you for acknowledging that. It is it is a, an emotional topic and um, I think it's one that needs to be discussed, but it's one that's scary to approach sometimes. It is. And it's so yeah. complicated, right? Because as, uh, you know, we, and we'll get into a lot of this, but it's so nuanced. It's a very yeah. nuanced topic. And there's a lot of really big feelings about it and our own experiences and our own traumas. So Holly, thank you. And to our listeners who are going to be listening to this as well, just know that whatever emotional reaction you have to this is completely normal it's not an indicator of where you're at in life or if you've healed or triggers come up and if you need to pause and take a break and call a friend or you know go to your therapist for a couple sessions before finishing then then that's perfect that's okay take care of yourself number one mm -hmm. yeah. number one yes so holly i would love to hear from you what made you decide that you would like to come and share on this podcast about your experiences uh, well, I, I think there's a few different things. So first of all, of course, I have very conflicted feelings about my time as a staff in one of these programs. You know, when I, when I accepted the position and as I grew, you know, of course, I started at the bottom. And as I grew or progressed through my time at this program, I, I worked there for about 10 years. And so by the time you were there, it was towards the end of my my time there and I felt like there were so many things I felt like for the most part the clinical staff the program staff 
I felt for the most part that people had good hearts and were trying to do the right thing by um, the kids that were in treatment and their families. And at the same time, I felt like there was so much that was misguided. And in many ways, because it's, it's like an echo chamber, right? Like the clinical staff, they only have really have clinical supervision and consultation with each other. And the program staff are supervised by other program staff, by peers who don't have a clinical education. And so what they've learned is only what they've been taught working there. Mm -hmm. And so everything is kind of in an echo chamber. And I think that there were a lot of really good intentions, but there were so many things that I saw that I felt were really problematic. And I, I hoped that by kind of like working myself through the ranks and everything that I could do some good and and make it an experience that would help kids grow to like love and respect themselves. And unfortunately, I don't think that the structure and the punitive nature of these programs is something that actually lends to that. Hmm. Yeah. So hoping to shed a light on on the the more professional perspective and that's a big reason why I'm wanting to talk about it as well I share a lot of your perspective of it in the areas where I worked both as a staff and as a therapist I didn't meet anybody who had ill intent no who was attempting to actively cause harm to these kids and if they did I wasn't aware of it at all However, on the other hand, just like you're saying, harm is being caused. So what exactly is happening here? And, and for, from what I've heard, the conversations that are happening out in the public are mostly people who have gone through the programs, mm-hmm. as opposed to people who have worked in the programs, whether as clinicians or as staff. And I think that that's a valuable perspective to lend, because yeah. it, it validates that, yeah, these experiences are real, that these kids are uh, having. Yes. And kind of give some background as to, okay, what's happening on the other hand here? I think the fact that it's such a closed system is so problematic, Mm -hmm. right? Like, uh, I left that place to move to New York to go to graduate school. And my first couple of weeks in graduate school, I thought, oh, my God, there is something really wrong that is happening. And But I didn't have that perspective because the only mentors I had, the only teachers I had, we're in this closed system. And so I could do what little bit of good that I felt like I could do in my heart. Like, I don't know, healthy sexuality. That was something I was really proud of the healthy sexuality group, because I was like, every time we talk to these kids about sex and sexuality, it's like shame and tell us your whole sexual history so we can all call you a slut or something horrible in detail in in gory detail gory graphic detail that is I mean that's not helpful for anyone and it just kind of that was something that I really hoped to I, I knew that I couldn't change the clinical direction because I was not a clinician or obviously a clinical director but I felt like by adding another layer right another type of group another type of experience exploring sex and sexuality that maybe I could do some good but it's like little bit yeah little yeah and I think that a lot of people are in your same shoes where you're with these kids and they're just incredibly lovable right sometimes so lovable lovable. sometimes behavior stuff that's tricky but other times not behavior stuff that's tricky and in general you're like oh my gosh I want to help these kids how can I do that? And it's just this really 
powerless, stuck feeling. So I'm curious from your end, what are some of those things that you saw? So you mentioned the sexual stuff, which I remember that hardcore where, where we both were, where there was a lot of messaging around, you know, if you are having sexual relations with a boy, then, you know, he does not care about you at all, right? Boys only care about sex. Girls only care about love. If you like sex as a girl, then you're like a sex addict, right? And if you yeah. are, <laughs> right? And if you're saying you love a girl as a boy, then you're lying to get sex. That was like the message there. It's so problematic and abusive. Really, truly. I mean, it just strips identity and self-worth from both males and females. And when I refer to males and females here in this setting, it's because of the binary that happened at that treatment center, not because that is the yeah. reality. Right. And that was very, um, you know, that was, it was like hammered into every piece of this program, right? Like the boys and girls were separated. If there was a gay young man or a lesbian young, young woman, they were told, well, you're too young to label yourself. And they were forced to, to date members of the opposite sex. If we had somebody who we, if we had a young woman who presented quite androgynously the thing was you need to be more like a girl How, mm. let's get you on hormones to make you feel more like a girl instead of tell us about your experience and what you need tell us about who you are and how can we support you in that development the binary was so forced when we did have teens who wanted to be dating girls who wanted to date other girls guys who wanted to date other guys that became like an issue in family therapy. And I remember one of my coworkers at the time talking to the clinician who said, well, we need to talk about this in session if so-and-so wants to date girls. And my coworker was said, well, why? We don't, we don't make girls who want to date boys discuss this in a family session. This is discriminatory. So, yeah, I mean, that's another piece that's so problematic. They're yeah. trying to maybe, I think the intention is, like, safety and to prevent, like, you know, sex happening between clients while they're in treatment. Yeah. But it doesn't prevent that because there is no binary. Yeah. And yeah, that stuff's going to happen. Our teenagers are hormonal. They want to have sex. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's we okay. And masturbate, right? Like, that's okay, course. too. It's not only okay, it's quite healthy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you go through life and all of the, you know, all of the messages that you get around sex and sexuality are shameful, you tend to be dysfunctionally, you know, dysfunctional sexually. Right. Yeah. Again, like losing that sense of identity, losing that sense of value within yourself, being able to, to just explore as a teenager, which is what the teenage years are for, right? To yeah. explore and to be your own person. And it seemed like with this specific facility, the goal was to get you back as a member of your family that fit into your family in the way that your family wanted you to fit in. Yes. And not about, in most cases, I think I did see a couple of cases where the family dynamics were really problematic and those were addressed. But for the most part, it was the teenager is the problem. We're going to contort your teenager back into who you want them to be. Uh, and good luck and send people on their way. And mm -hmm. it's just uh, human, human beings don't work that way. Yeah. So when you noticed things going wrong or, or, you know, little red flags were popping up, did you feel like you could go talk to somebody about it and that change would happen or what, what would happen 
if you had those thoughts? Um, well, I mean, a bunch of different things, right? Like I definitely, especially when I found myself in a position of leadership, I felt like it's my duty to bring this to my leadership, who is a clinical leadership, right? And it depends on what it was. If it was something that they felt personally attacked by, then it was shut down and, and I was berated behind closed doors and screamed at and yelled at. And, and if it was something that worked with their agenda or with their perspective, then it was, you know, great. Mm -hmm. So it was a really big toss up and you kind of never knew what you were going to get. You give somebody who's a not qualified to be in a leadership position, a leadership position, but then there's verbal abuse or berating when the you can't read the the mind of the people in charge. Mm. Yeah, so a lot of um, just separation between the different the the staff versus the clinical versus even the ownership and the board yep. and and everybody has their own agendas. It's hard to bridge the two. And yeah. the staff were really the main players as yeah. far as as far as I could tell where I was sitting there. I, I was there, I want to say seven, eight months, uh, which was short in comparison to most people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't complete the program. I was pulled out third phase. But I think I saw my therapist uh, for a family session, maybe once per parent and then maybe twice individually ever wow. during yeah. that entire span all of the groups were run by staff members and I, I think some specialized groups were sometimes run by therapists but those mm -hmm. were honestly some of the worst ones the ones where you had to journal out all of your sexual experiences and go over them in detail yeah um, and then one of the therapists ran some exercise groups sometimes mm -hmm. yeah and that that was it like the therapists were were strangers yeah and that is really weird right mm -hmm. like i'm not sure what they were doing all day <laughs> i know that the model was that the, that every kid was supposed to have a family session every three weeks which that in, a, in itself is really problematic even if that mm -hmm. standard is being met that's not nearly enough but even at that standard i think that's negligent mm -hmm. at best um and so what you have then is the actual people who are doing the quote-unquote therapy are unlicensed paraprofessional staff who've only been taught by this program and by this program's staff training program. Right. A lot of the staff had gone through the treatment yeah. center and then were hired on as staff. And then other staff members were just kind of members of the community looking for a job, right. maybe going into psychology or maybe just looking for a a job any job yeah yeah we had a lot who came through as like interns in their um, undergrad or grad program and then stayed so a lot of different separate pieces not a lot of communication a ton of responsibility put on you how did that feel to have all of these kids there were a lot of kids in that main yeah. room how did it feel to have all of their lives kind of on your shoulders at that point in your career I mean, it wasn't, my career hadn't even really started, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, it was terrifying. I mean, the, the thing about having a paraprofessional that's the one on call 24-7, like I, here I am, I'm in college, 
don't even have a bachelor's degree yet and I'm the one being called in the middle of the night if somebody runs away or if there's Mm -hmm. a violent incident or you know any kind of emergency I'm the one being called in the middle of the night and you know at that point I don't have a code of ethics to rely upon all I have is like what I've learned from this place it was terrifying it was absolutely terrifying you know I took the I feel like I took the responsibility seriously and it felt like an honor to me to like have a leader leadership position in this program because I loved the kids honestly they're so lovable and I felt like I wanted to be sort of like a stable consistent figure because it's a hard thing going through one of these programs Mm -hmm. yeah it's just you're really powerless in so many ways and you get directed to do things that you know aren't don't feel right what did you think would happen or what did happen when you or other staff members would go against that direction one thing that I will say for for the staff is the whole time I was there we were very vocal if there was some decision that was happening that we felt like was harmful then of course we would speak up but of course, we also didn't have the power. And so there were sometimes in, in meetings where we were deciding earnings or privileges or whatever, where, you know, it's like a yelling match. And it's like, this is a very dysfunctional family. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've heard that sentiment before from other staff that I've talked to is that it, it's this fight, it's this yelling match of you know people advocating for the kids, the, the people who are with the kids the most advocating yeah. for the kids. And there's these other people who just don't know the kids as well making decisions and it feels very distant. Yes. Or even the other way around the staff saying like, I don't think this kid is ready for this responsibility yet. Mm. And you don't have the power and you shouldn't have the power, but the people who do have the power don't really know the kids. Kind of out of touch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've felt that before with psychiatrists and my dad's a psychiatrist. I'm not anti-psychiatrist, but in my experience as a therapist working in residential settings, whether adults or with adolescents, in all of the residential settings that I've worked in, I've been, you know, I've seen the clients once a week for individual sessions, as well as once a week for family sessions. So twice right? a week. Once a week. So twice yes, a week. With full, yes, two sessions per week. And then, and then run all of the groups. groups. So yeah. I've always had in my position as a therapist, a lot of face-to-face with my clients. So then when they go see the psychiatrist once a month or once every other month and, and the psychiatrist is saying all of these things about them or wanting to do this, it's like, ah, I really wish that you take my perspective seriously. And some psychiatrists are better than others. Sure. Um, but I similar feeling, right, mm-hmm. to when you're spending so much time with these kids and you're like, hey, I'm really seeing a struggle here and they'll just really dismiss it or I'm really seeing some strengths here and then it gets dismissed again. Are there any moments that really stand out to you with clients? Any of those moments that still kind of haunt you to this day? Yeah, I mean, there's there's one um, that really stands out to me because I think it was the first time that I was, that I really came face to face with the reality that harm was being done. I got a phone call from, I think it was two former clients that were on the phone together and they basically called to confront me or whoever answered the phone about the harm that was caused to them in treatment. And I was floored. I was blown away because in no way had I ever seen anyone try to inflict harm. And so listening to them, I was just 
like it, I, I asked them, like, please tell me more. You know, I wanted to understand. I wanted to understand what they felt like was so harmful. And then all I could do was apologize. I, I was, I was like, I'm so sorry that I, that wasn't my intention, and I don't want to hurt you. And hope that you're able to heal. Like, what do you, what do you do? Like, I still work yeah. for this place. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I apologized. I just said, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't. I never meant to hurt you. And I see that you are hurt. So I am so sorry. And then I had to go like talk to the director about this phone call and be like, I don't know what to do here when like, this is the first time that this happened. And I want to be very like respectful of that pain. And I want us to not cause pain and not cause suffering and not cause harm. Do you remember what the director said? You know, to, to his credit, he was really he said you did exactly the right thing we don't want to cause harm and when we do hear mm-hmm. that we have caused harm it's good it's important for us to take it seriously would you mind sharing what they said if you remember or do you feel like that would be too personal i don't remember the specific complaints okay. um i remember they were very angry and very hurt okay yeah, yeah that would be really hard to hear but, uh- I also think of like the myriad now having a different perspective now, right? Mm-hmm. Having many years, this is many, many years ago. So I kind of, am, I, I feel like almost anything that they could have said is like, of course, there's so many more things that they could have said that they probably didn't, you know, there's so Absolutely. much was so harmful that I just didn't realize at the time that was so harmful. Oh, yeah. And, and w- what was your process like as you started to go through graduate school? I mean, you mentioned that it was pretty quick into graduate school. That you were like, oh, my gosh, what were we doing? So what yeah. was the rest of that unfurling like for you and unlearning? Honestly, I think it's, you know, I, I think I experienced my own trauma working there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when you do harm, even when it's unintentional, then that is a traumatic experience that I've really had to work on for myself. I've talked with some other people who I worked with, you know, who were also on staff and, you know, they've had similar feelings and I've had to kind of like work on forgiving, forgiving myself and, you know, reminding myself like when we know better, we do better. But also I feel like it's really important to, you know, understand or try to know what you don't know or be aware that there's things you don't know because in this experience it was like the director the program directors the clinical directors they were like gods and so whatever they said went so of course anything that they said or any direction they gave was the right thing to do Mm -hmm. and I do believe it was well-intentioned too like I don't think that they were trying to cause harm or trying to hurt anybody but when you take people's freedoms away when you take their identities away when you separate people from their from their families, damage is done. Mm-hmm. And when you shame people about their actions and their experiences in life, rather than trying to be understanding and compassionate, we can't actually change anything for the better. Yeah, we absolutely not. You know, human beings, we don't ch- make positive changes from a place of shame. We can't. No, not at all. We can't change a behavior that we don't fully understand. And in order to fully understand, that requires compassion. Exactly. And I see, especially in the long term, yeah. as you can in the short term, right? You can mitigate, you can adapt based on, you know, big emotions, based on knowing the game, right? You yeah. have to play the game the way that the game wants to be played. There's, there's no other way out. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. But then you get through it. And for me, part of the unraveling of it all was, you know, when I started graduate school, I was very uninterested in working with trauma um, because I was under the impression because of my own, what I considered, you know, healing process, I was a pretty functional adult, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, which in reality, there were so many things going wrong. And it's like, no, you weren't. (laughs) But I was, you know, really, you really are. And you're trying so hard, even though you're traumatized, you're doing doing your very best. And on paper, you might really look functional, even though it might feel like fucked up. Right, exactly. Like on paper, everything looked great. Like by the time I entered graduate school, I think I was 22 years old. I had two kids. I owned a house. I, you know, I was succeeding, right? Right. And so in my mind, it's like, okay, the messages I had been told by my therapist so far, including being in residential treatment center was essentially like act the part, shove it all down, do what you're supposed to do. And that is what health is that you just move on, you get over it, you push past it, whatever you need to do to just play the part. Mm -hmm. So it took me, honestly, my first internship, when Mm -hmm. I was at a methadone clinic and working with addiction to really, and it came on very suddenly, it was like, Oh, my gosh, okay, everything I know is wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To really understand the impact that trauma really has on a person. And yeah. that attachment dynamics really have on a person. And then, of course, of course, being able to look at my own life, because I, you know, at, at that point had was freshly out of a, a very abusive relationship as well. And to be able to say, okay, in reality, this kind of behavior modification stuff has never worked for these people who are struggling with addiction. In reality, it sure. did not work for me. No. Well, and going from these treatment models that are abstinent only 12 step you must believe Mm -hmm. in god you must turn everything over to higher power to working in a harm reduction medication assisted treatment program like methadone that must have been a culture shock oh my gosh it totally was it totally understanding eye-opener wasn't it it was it was amazing like the looking at this of okay there is this isn't a moral failure right this is a medical issue that's happening And these people are, you know, of course, I I grew up, you know, pretty conservative LDS as well, and had no understanding of it, even though my my dad is an addiction specialized psychiatrist, but I guess we just didn't talk much about it. (laughs) Um, So my culture influenced me more than my family. But, But being able to sit there and recognize like, oh, my gosh, okay, so learning that this stuff actually does impact your brain, your your development, all of this stuff actually does impact your brain and your body. It influences your, you know, so many different things in your life. And then starting to learn these different modalities where you actually can make changes on a deeper level. It doesn't have to just be this war all the time. Like you don't have to just be holding it all in as tight as possible. And it's really not a measure of recovery. No, exactly. But yeah, pretty shocking pretty uh, interesting like personal mirror as I was going through that unraveling process and realizing how much harm was actually done I knew when I came out I was angry and I'd never been an angry person before Mm -hmm. but when I came out I was just so deeply angry and I hung on to that anger for years and years until I started doing my own healing uh, my real healing you know Um, so somewhere in me I knew 
how upset I was, but I didn't know exactly why and exactly how traumatizing the experience was until I learned more. And I feel, you know, bad, sad, upset for those who didn't go on to get any kind of clinical training or go on to see a therapist who has experience in working with people who are coming out of these kinds of settings because it took both of us going into clinical roles yeah. to realize like, oh my gosh, and I can't yeah. imagine what it would be like to not have that experience. Yeah, me too. And I'm so sorry because I was on the staff when you were in, in treatment and I'm so sorry for the harm that was caused to you. Well, that's really meaningful to hear. I appreciate hearing that. And we've developed a, a relationship and I've seen you throughout the years on social media. And I know that you're an incredible, loving person. So yeah. I forgive you. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. I mean, I there's there's just so many mixed emotions that come with all of this stuff, right? Yeah, it, it's so complicated. It's so complicated. And being being that person who's, you know, you're in a position where like oh my gosh I'm so sorry and at the same time you were trying so hard to help mm -hmm. and that's complicated yeah it is it's very complicated so I wonder you know as as you've experienced more as a therapist as you've seen different types of centers we've been talking specifically about the center that you and I both <laughs> overlapped in but have you seen similar dynamics or heard of similar dynamics in other treatment centers like this? Or do you think it was specifically this one? No, I think it is one that we were both, we, we both experienced actually was one of the better ones. Um, and there were definitely horror stories about other ones that were in the area. And then, you know, also moving to New York and seeing things done a very different way and having a very different culture. You know, there are other, other, programs that are similar to this that the harm is done in different ways yeah, yeah so there's something structural and complicated about yeah. it yeah and I think like the beginning the first programs like this I believe started on the east coast mm. and so there is sort of the still reverberation of that on the east coast but then you know Utah's like the wild wild west when it comes to licensing and regulation <laughs> <laughs> and so all kinds of things can happen that really shouldn't when there's no oversight or regulation. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing, like I was really, I feel like I was really lucky, you know, in my internship during graduate school, I worked um, for the Alley Forney Center, which is, a, you know, a program that provides housing and wraparound services to homeless LGBTQ youth and young adults in New York City. And um, so, you know, we had people from all over the country because A, it's a sanctuary city and um, B, that's the message, right? Like from forever, if you're a gay kid and your parents are kicking you out, get to a big city. Mm -hmm. So I had this really cool experience of doing some clinical work there, but also just sort of like some milieu, like groups and things that weren't so rigid at all like mm. there was a great value found in like let's share what this music means to us what's your music and what does it mean to you and like really spending time in fortifying one's sense of themselves and sense of their values in ways that don't have to be so prescribed um so i thought that was a phenomenal experience which i would not trade for the world and then my first job out of grad school i worked in a day treatment program for people living with HIV as well as mental illness or substance use issues. 
mm-hmm. and or substance use issues. So again, this is a voluntary program. It's someplace that adults come to during the day. They get hot meals. They get therapy. They get group treatment. Um, they get transportation. And that was incredible clinical work that didn't include control and coercion. Yeah. So seeing both of the, of the different types of systems, what would you say are the main differences? Because you mentioned before, and I expressed as well, that the people working, at least the people that we interacted with working in these systems, mean well on both mm-hmm. ends. But there's something going on with you know, these certain types of teen treatment centers that's twisting it to where the harm is done anyway. What are some of those differences? I think some of the differences have to do with regulations and mm-hmm. how how the regulations are enforced. I think about, this is kind of dark, but I think about individuals in humanity, we are capable of great love and kindness. As a whole, I don't think there's very much to be proud of in terms of the way that we treat people. Throughout our entire history, people who have more power have abused people who have less power. And in, and again, that's global, that's not individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But in these situations, you do in these programs, you do have the staff has all the power and the children, the teenagers have zero power. And so I just think any dynamic like that, where there's such a power differential, that's where harm is caused. Mm. So in, you know, I'm sure you're the same in your clinical practice today and my clinical practice today. I work as hard as I can to eliminate mm-hmm. or, you know, make it as level as a playing field as possible. We're partners in this. We're partners in your healing. We're partners in your growth. Um, this isn't me prescribing something to you or doing something to you. This is a, this is a collaborative experience yeah. that we create together in therapy. And I absolutely, I think, I think really that is the root of it is when people, when there's power over some uh, somebody else that the, the person with less power gets abused. Oh yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And I even saw this with working with children in outpatient clinics. I actually just one. I just worked in one outpatient clinic that worked with, with children, children, not teenagers The even the power dynamic there, the therapist and the parents have a ton of power. The kid is there usually because their parent wants them to be there, mm-hmm. usually for some kind of behavior that the parent doesn't enjoy or that isn't convenient for the parent or that worries the parent. Sure. And then, you know, the typically the parent wants the kid to just change, right? Yeah. Not to focus. Yeah, not to focus on the family dynamic, not to focus on, okay, what what do the parents need to heal within themselves in order to not react in the way that they're reacting to this kid when when this kid behaves in a certain way or does a certain thing and then can then in turn be what this kid needs them to be in order to grow, right? That's typically not what ends up happening Mm-mm. in those kinds of and situations. That's the number one thing that needs to happen. Exactly. That's like with the shame versus compassion. It's not a parent's job to control their child and shape exactly how they're going to be. The parent's job is to get to know their child and to help them be who they are. Yes. If there's a behavior that is challenging or whatever, you can't do anything with that behavior until you deeply understand it. Mm -hmm. And if that behavior is coming from a wounded place, 
in your child, the only thing to do is to be tender and, and attune yourself to that wound so that you can help them heal it. Yeah. Yes. And the only way to do that is to be able to do the same for yourself in order to feel, you have to be able to feel those emotions deeply acknowledge, what they are comfort them, not shame yourself for experiencing emotions. And it's, it's so complicated. And I think it's so easy to point fingers at parents. Oh, Um, But they're just in this situation because they're desperate and they're worried about their kids. Right, exactly. And then the professionals are telling them that this is the right thing to do. They're turning to the professionals and the professionals are saying, you know, put them on a behavior plan or put them in residential treatment, whatever it is. So they're trusting. They're scared. They're worried. They're usually at their wits end, right? It's There's still so much stigma around therapy, even outpatient therapy, let let alone inpatient therapy. Usually parents aren't going to that as their first step, right? They'd rather do anything else. Yeah. But they they have to. And then these professionals are saying, okay, you know, trust us, trust this process. Don't listen to the bad reviews. Don't listen to to the news. Don't listen to anything that you're hearing. And then they have this entire team of people trained to essentially manipulate them but not on purpose they don't know that they're manipulating them they just think that they're advocating for the program and doing their job well and helping these kids so it it's a lot and that is because of this closed system Mm -hmm. right the closed system yeah just not having the transparency even you know for thinking solutions one thing that i thought about regularly when I was working in treatment centers is it would be great to have the parents come and play the role of the staff for, you know, two weeks, every couple of months Uh and really be focusing on their relationship in real time, as opposed to doing these kind of weekend seminars four times a year, whatever, however often it happens or virtual parent sessions or, you know, family sessions every three weeks, whatever the system is that they're, I think there's a, a lot of different things that could be looked at, but it's just not necessarily the way that it's currently done. Yeah. And so but just that human tendency to just do things, how they're done gets in the way of being able to make progress. So you said the power dynamic. So there's the power dynamic. I'm curious in those other two centers that you mentioned in New York, the LGBT homeless <laughs> youth one and the HIV clinic, um, did they choose to live there? Obviously, they didn't choose to get kicked out of their homes, but did they choose to come to those specific centers? Yeah, so at Ali Forney, they definitely chose to live there, um, and they were able to, you know, there were different levels of housing. So when it was, it was like emergency, like you're a street homeless, you need a safe place to be, this is emergency housing, and then there's like, all right, let's help you get stable, and let's help you, like, do you need to go back to school? Do you want to go to work? Do you want to go to college? What is it that you want to do? And okay, you're stable. You're doing your goal. Let's move you into like um, transitional housing, like where we're going to work on getting you to the point where you, once you age out at 26 or whatever it is, that then you can be independent. Mm-hmm. So in that case, the the clients are definitely finding the center. Um, I say kids, youth and young adults, like 16 to 25, I think was the age range. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the HIV day program, they didn't live with us. It wasn't a housed program. It was just a day program. And um, it was voluntary. A lot of people, again, like we had a lot of people who were on methadone. It was a lot of people that were, you know, really struggling and wanting to do something different, wanting a safe place to be during the day. But that, you know, 
could easily turn into more. Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, it was awesome. Harm reduction. Like, yeah, we had people who like, you know, were hardcore drug addicts for most of their life become sober because you can have accountability and compassion at the same time. Yeah. Only way that it works. Yes. But that, that underfooting of of their agency as well is the, it sounds like it's the, the theme of all of this if you are choosing it if this is what you want and of course that's terrifying as a society as parents as far as you know all the liability goes with all the therapeutic stuff and medical stuff it's terrifying to allow people to have their agency and to choose but there there has to be a way to do it effectively well the thing is is they have their agency anyway so their agency then just becomes well do i lie do i pretend do i run Mm. away rather than oh this is something that might be useful to me and i can choose to participate or not like i think the rule i mean not that there's no rules or standards in these programs there are um but for example in in the hiv program the standard was like you when you come to to program you have to go to at least one group and you have to meet with your therapist at least once a month it wasn't really a therapist it was like a clinical case manager and then if they were in therapy, then they'd have a different person mm-hmm. than their manager on staff. And they'd see that person, however, often was negotiated weekly or biweekly. Um, and we had, of course, like treatment plans. This person needs harm reduction group. Okay. So, th- you know, every Wednesday you're going to go to harm reduction group. On Tuesday, you can pick what group do you want to go to. But it wasn't like you must be in treatment for 12 hours straight all day, every day. It was a <laughs> And they call the, you know, the whole therapeutic community it's such a like a misnomer but this was like a true therapeutic community where like people had agency and people had relationships and you know lunchtime was like a party like not a not a drug party but a party like there was music and dancing and dominoes and like oh that's nice it was wonderful and to see people heal because they could have compassion and start to believe that of in their worth rather than like i must comply yeah if feeling that love and respect from each other that's a therapeutic community yes and between the staff and the clients too that there's Mm -hmm. mutual respect that there's mutual understanding and the trust that the clients are able to put in the therapist the therapist to really deeply understand them and make recommendations based on the relationship and not just a high level. This is the symptom. This is the treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very person centered. All the, you know, those words that you hear everywhere that don't actually play out into reality, right? That it's individualized treatment plans, person centered, client first. You know, you know, what does that actually mean in reality? And it, this really lays it out of that mutual respect that happens and figuring out what does this person actually first want and need for their yeah. life? How can we support them without controlling them and managing them? How can we support them? support Mm -hmm. it's a word that gets thrown around pretty loosely i think but yeah i think that's the key you know people as you know we people have the innate wisdom that they need to heal it's just they need compassion and love and understanding to to access that yeah a great example of that that i heard at an emdr training was 
EMDR is so great. Um, <laughs> yes, the, and it, it's it's just about that, right? That we are accessing your internal resources. We are giving your internal resources a voice, a platform. We're accentuating them. And it's not about me. Your brain already has the information. It just needs help mm-hmm. adapting or like connecting to the adaptive information. Yeah, exactly. So- it's it's not me telling you how you should be thinking. Like no. I hate that. I hate uh, that's always felt cringy to me as a therapist. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to tell you what your version of reality should be. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but so what I heard in this EMDR, <laughs> what was that? Who made you the expert on what somebody else should be thinking? I, it's I know, right? Oh, that's unhealthy. You should stop. Like, I don't know. Why would I know that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure most of the things that I do are unhealthy. Um, but so in that training that I went to for EMDR, I want to say his name was Roy Keisler. Uh, was the trainer, but I'll look that up and and put it in the notes somewhere. Uh, He did EMDR with people in the Middle East who were, you know, under the impression or under the belief system that it was their duty to be harmful, to be, you know, suicide bombers, essentially was the example that he used. And in that EMDR group, and I don't know the context of exactly how this all got started, what they noticed is that all of the brain shifted away from that. And and it was some evidence within a theory that brains are set up for not only our own survival, but for the survival of others. We are set up oh. to be whole, to be, you know, mm-hmm. healing, just like any wound that we might get on our body. Well, all just of our... the whole universe, right? Yeah. The universe has a natural impulse towards evolution. Mm-hmm. And by biology has a natural impulse towards evolution we have natural impulses towards healing and the same is true for our brains our brains want to be healthy we have a natural impulse to be mentally well yeah so all of our resources want to go towards that so (laughs) support right is essentially helping a person be in that space where their body their brain can do what it naturally does best as opposed to creating more barriers like if somebody gets a simple cut we're going to clean it out we're going to put a band-aid on it and then it's going to heal itself we're not going to dive in and do surgery and give them a bunch of stitches and stuff because that's that's you know not necessary and probably going to do more harm than good Yeah. yeah yeah what do you think needs to happen there's there's all these these different voices right some people want to completely abolish adolescent treatment centers um of course some people think that they are really the only route to go when you're when you're really desperate when you have a kid who just is really struggling and there seems to be no other options there's a lot of voices on either end where do you sit and what do you think needs to change i mean i feel like this is so complicated because i do feel like there are places safe places where teenagers can get real treatment need to happen but these programs are not that these are not And I'm not saying all of them, right? I don't know all of them. I'm not making a blanket statement. The ones set up like the one that I worked at, it's not set up to be a safe place where kids get real treatment. It's just not. It's not safe for people to be isolated from their families that long, to have every interaction with their families so strictly supervised. You know, it's not safe to have the majority of the quote-unquote treatment happening from people who are not actually licensed, educated professionals. I, I do think that there needs to be a safe place for teens that can get real, that can offer real treatment. 
and I don't know how to solve this problem of the power differential. They have their own agency, but if they're within a structure that has more power than they do, then their agency, they still have it. I mean, that's why kids act out in these situations, right? But it's limited and it's, and it's limited to destructive behaviors mm -hmm. for them. Because it's and the there can be severe consequences for them enacted by people who have power that wouldn't necessarily happen if they were adults. Right. Definitely wouldn't happen if it were adults. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think there are certain times where kids need to be in like a confined, not confined in terms of like prison, right? But a contained space where they can be safe and get the help they need. Um, but I think that these are overused and I think that they're used for kids who don't actually need that level of care. And I think that the, the isolation or like the, the removal from the family, as long as the family itself isn't abusive, needs to be much shorter. It needs to be like, let's get you safe. Let's get you stabilized. And let's, let's, let's get some collaboration going on. What is it that you feel like the issue is and how do we support you in becoming who you want to be? Who do you see yourself? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. The collaboration, the respect, the yeah. decrease that power dynamic. Partnership. Partnership. Yeah. Right. Consent. Whereas, hello. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. Not just consent, but informed consent. Yes. Yes. For, for the parents and the children. Cause yeah. from where I, you know, from what I saw, there was none, it, you know, even as a, as a therapist, there wasn't full informed no. consent there was that a was happening sign this mm -hmm. and oftentimes not even going through the form or even giving the parents much time to read the form just like sign this huge stack of paperwork yeah and yeah we own your kid now yeah yeah, yeah. i i agree that the you know informed consent decreasing that power differential which is something that is huge that we learn as therapists but but then in so many different systems that we work on, it's not there. Um, for for you, to any parents listening, what do you wish that they could hear from you as somebody who has worked in a treatment center who is now a licensed therapist? What do they need to hear? I think I would, I would want parents to do the work to deeply understand their child, to deeply know their child, and to do so without judgments or preconceptions allow your child to teach you about who they are and who they want to be. And when you have a real understanding of that and allow them to share their wounds with you, because when you have a real understanding of that, you can be much more effective. And I think you'll feel better about yourself as a parent too. If you can see yourself identifying like a wounded part of your teenager that is acting out because it feels so powerless that rather than disciplining or getting angry or yelling and screaming or sending them away, maybe they need you to, you know, wrap their arms around them yeah. and show them unconditional love and support and belief in their ability to heal mm -hmm. and belief in their ability to become whoever, whatever awesome kind of person they want to be. Yeah. I think that would be so incredibly healing for not only the teen but also the parent to be yeah. able to go through that. And it's, it's hard. It's, you know, incredibly hard to feel those and to reconnect, like you said, to that wounded teenager within 
and you know all of those wounds within and be able to hold them so we can't hold our teenager if we can't hold our teenager version of ourselves if we're still trying to reject and cast away that part of ourselves that we don't align with anymore or that part of ourselves that maybe we never even were because we were so strictly trying to constrict ourselves to be a perfect person throughout our teens it's so hard to get into that space that's required to be with and understand our our own teenagers So one last question for you before we head off. Well, I guess I'll one more question about this and then I'll ask one more about you. What would you say, what message do you want to get out to the kids that you were, uh, you were the staff when they were there? I I think the number one thing is like, you are remarkable. You are beautiful and powerful and lovable. And you should always have been treated that way I didn't think I was going to get so emotional hearing you say that (laughs) because I was one of those kids too um and I wanted to share as well to the kids who were at the treatment center that I worked at while I was there that I think about you all the time Mm -hmm. um and that I do love you right Mm -hmm. not only are you lovable but I think about you and I love you and I hope that you're doing well and I'm so sorry as well for for the way that I contributed to your trauma absolutely Uh, yeah and I wish you all the best because you you deserve it and so thank you so much Holly for being a part of this interview it was really incredible talking to you and so for those you know if there's anyone listening in New York if they want to reach out to you if they've been to one of these treatment centers and they're looking for a therapist who can really help them yes uh, how can they get a hold of you so the best thing would probably be just to go to my website. It's uh, pursueyourpeace.com, P-U-R-S-U-E-Y-O-U-R-P-E-A-C-E, pursueyourpeace.com, and you can contact me through there. I am really impressed with your ability to just spell that all out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've had to learn because it's, um, I don't know, people just don't understand, so I've just learned to do it. <laughs> That's really amazing. I'd have to like write it down as I'm spelling it. Like, what am I saying? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I will also have that in the show notes. So wherever you're listening, if you just go to the description of this, Holly's contact information will be there. Her website will be there. Thank yeah. you again so much for um, being here. It's my pleasure. And thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing around this. And thank you for inviting me to talk about it. Of course. I'll see you later, Holly. Got it. Have a great one. You too. We don't need no miracle. I think we've seen it all. Just make the go. I'll go.